Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome you to this VTE Expert Podcast. My name is Jan Bayer-Westendorf. I'm a thrombosis hemostasis physician at Dresden University here in Germany. And today with me is uh, Dr. Cecilia Beccatini from the University of Perugia, who probably doesn't need any introduction. She's a, a world-renowned expert on VTE treatment. And it's very good to have you here, Cecilia. Hi, hi, Jan. And hi, everyone. And we are going to, let's say, to have some discussion on the management of venous thromboembolism today with my friend Jan. And we hope we will deal with some important clinical issues in the management of venous thromboembolism. Yeah. Thanks, Cecilia. I think one of the biggest concerns still after 10 years of using DOAG is when we uh, take anticoagulation to frail to old uh, patients. So the, the really the sick ones, the very old patients, the patients with, with renal in, in impairment. Do, do you understand what is the challenge there? Can you, can you share your ideas of, of what is the concern of the prescribing pa uh, physician? Yeah, yeah, Jan, because we know this is a concern in everyday clinical practice. Indeed, now, as you were saying, we have experience from 10 years of use of these agents in our clinical practice. Initially, our, let's say, use was strictly related to the criteria for, uh, let's say, inclusion of patients in clinical trials, in randomized clinical trials that we know provided evidence on thousands of patients. Now we have data from our personal experience in the use of these agents, but also from publications, from data on administrative databases, so from real-world experience on the efficacy and safety of these agents. And during these years, over the course of these years, we also learned how to use uh, these agents in those categories of patients that are perceived to be frail, so elderly patients. We know we have data in over 75 from clinical trials, but we know in our clinical practice, we have patients who are over 90, over 85. So patients that are really old or patients who have impaired renal function. And this means also patients with creatinine clear clearance lower than 30 milliliters per minute that we know were excluded from randomized clinical trials, but now we have some evidence also in these patients' categories. But what I think in my perception is important in venous thromboembolism as a difference from atrial fibrillation that we know in the acute phase, we need anticoagulant treatment to reduce mortality. So this is really something that is peculiar of patients with acute venous thromboembolism. So even if we have a patient that is 92, or if we have a patient with a creatinine clearance that is particularly low, we need anticoagulation to reduce mortality in this patient. So in my opinion, this is something that is really important to take in mind because we don't have the option of no treatment for these patients. What is your impression, Jan? No, I, I fully agree there. So no treatment is not an option. So if I approach these patients, and I mean, German, uh, Germany is a an, 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 an population that is getting older and older all the time. So uh, this is a challenge that I face nearly every day. So um, exactly as you pointed out, my question is how to treat, not if to treat. So we are probably, we, we, we need to understand that there will be a risk 
for bleeding, but we need to cover that by choosing the right drug at the right dosage, not by not providing um, anticoagulation. Yeah, and what we know from currently available evidence is that these patients usually have anyway an increased thrombotic risk. This is particularly the case for patients with renal failure. This is true for atrial fibrillation, but this is also true for acute venous thromboembolism. And at the same time, these patients have an increased risk for bleeding. But we know from results of randomized trials that uh, patients who have acute renal failure and patients who have uh, reduced renal function also have an advantage in terms of improved safety from the use of DOACs, and in particular, obviously, for the case of patients uh, with reduced renal function, this is particularly the case for anti-DNA agents, and we have good data with rivaroxaban from randomized clinical trials. So the issue here is that probably we have uh, enough evidence to believe that DOACs are an option also in fragile patients and probably the best option. So uh, in the case of venous thromboembolism, we also have the specific population of patients with acute pulmonary embolism that we feel are a subgroup of patients that is peculiar in the wide range of patients with acute venous thromboembolism because of an increased risk of mortality in the acute phase. What do you think, Jan? Uh, absolutely. Um, and I think for the for the audience, when, when we talk about pulmonary embolism in the next couple of minutes, I think for the audience, it's very important um, to remind yourself that pulmonary embolism is not a single entity. It's a, it's a range of, of um, problems from basically starting with low-risk pulmonary embolism to very severe cases um, that have um, that are clinically unstable, they are on ICU, they might be under resuscitation. So it is a range of, of symptoms from from mild to very severe, and obviously the, the, the treatment concept can't be the same for all the patients. And to stay in the focus of today's podcast, I think it's it's reasonable to look at the risk categories and the anticoagulation options for each risk category separately. So um, if you start at the low risk population, that is patients without a right heart strain and echo, they do have some symptoms of pulmonary embolism. They have the, the diagnosis made by maybe CT scan but they are clinically stable. So hemodynamic is stable. They, they are not hypoxic. They are not needing oxygen. They, are, they don't have right heart strain and echo. Those patients, we in, in many countries around the world, such patients are treated as, as outpatients. And clearly, a, a parental drug or a difficult-to-use drug uh, such as a vitamin K antagonist is today is no longer a, a very good option for these patients. So in my hospital and in many, many sites in Germany, outpatient treatment means a direct factor 10A inhibitor treatment because you can put the patient directly onto apixaban or rivaroxaban uh, without having the need for, for lomoquid heparin uh, for initial treatment. So these are our treatment options. And for rivaroxaban, we have the, uh, the hot PE um, data, where, which was a, a cohort where home treatment with rivaroxaban starting from the day of a PE diagnosis was prospectively assessed. And the study nicely showed that it's a very feasible um, option. So I, I wouldn't worry about outpatients too much, clear-cut 
an, an adore cohort and for logistic reasons i think it it should be a, a, a cohort uh, treated with a pixaban or or rivaroxaban to avoid the heparin injections it's a little bit more difficult for the intermediate risk category so these these are patients with more severe symptoms they might be troponin positive they might have some right heart strain in echo but hemodynamically they are still stable so they are on standard ward or in the ed but they are not on icu they are not unstable so would you use um, drugs for these patients? Well, I think that here the point is, uh, um, let's say, some concern in case the patients can deteriorate and you would need thrombolysis. But we know that this happened in about 5 to 7% of the patients in the first week. We usually prefer to start with a parenteral, let's say, treatment in the very, very acute phase. But we know that this initial parenteral treatment was also allowed in randomized clinical trials with the anti-TNA agents, also in the case of the single drug approach. So what we usually do, we prefer to keep the patients on parenteral anticoagulation for in the initial 24 to 48 hours. And then we usually shift the patients to an oral agent that is, that, uh, let's say, provide some better anticoagulation in the long term and probably a better compliance to treatment in the very long term. And uh, this, the second point is, Jan, that these patients uh, usually stay in the hospital for about five to seven days. So it's not a problem if they require one additional day of parental anticoagulation. This is not a problem, I think. When we think about a six-month course of anticoagulation, one day, one additional day is not a problem in real life, in clinical practice, I mean. Um, just to, 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 to make that clear to the audience, so our position, both of us, the position is that as long as you consider thrombolysis, the patient should, or there is a risk for thrombolysis, the patient should not be on, on a DOAC or not on any of the DOACs. Is that right? As a bottom line. Yeah, we do not have data. We know there are some clinical trials that are ongoing that will start very early after thrombolysis, also with director anticoagulants, but still we do not have this data available. So this is something that we should avoid. Yeah. So, uh, and when once the patient was thrombolyzed, probably we would consider a DOAC after two, three, four days um, yeah. post thrombolysis to be a safe option. But as is pointed out, we have to wait. Um, for for the for the data on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I mean, we have now uh, touched shortly on different kinds of DOACs. Um, factor ten inhibitors was one word used. Warfarin, uh, vitamin K antagonist was it was used already, and we discussed the, the place for parental drugs such as low mercury heparins. So obviously, is there a hierarchy when we talk about when we come back to our original question of the frail patients? So the very old patient, patient with renal impairment, the sick, the low body weight patients. Can we put a kind of hierarchy to these very different um, treatment options? How do you use them? Yeah, first of all, I have to admit that having such a wide range of treatments is, let's say, something that is an option for physicians and for patients because we may imagine to tailor our anticoagulant treatment on our patients. What we know is that for these particular vulnerable patients, probably we have much more available data on, with the anti-TNA. So this is important to say that we know we also have antithrombin agents, but the majority of the data on patients with venous thromboembolism are with the anti-TNA, in particular in vulnerable patients. Then the second information is that we have uh, data on large 
samples of uh, uh, real-world, let's say, populations, in particular for rivaroxaban and apixaban. This is another information that is important to take care. So the, la the large majority of the data on this specific subgroup of patients are probably with these two agents. Despite we know that edoxaban is the only one that have data from randomized trial with those reductions. So this is also an information that we should keep in mind. Second point is that these agents have different clearance, renal clearance. So we may, let's say, keep in mind that this is important when our patient is vulnerable due to renal impairment. So this is another important point. And uh, additionally, we know that risk for bleeding was particularly reduced in comparison to warfarin in these specific vulnerable subgroups. So when we think about a potential concern for safety, we should, let's say, relax because we know that bleeding risk may be reduced by the use of rivaroxaban and apixaban and so on. So this is my potential, let's say, hierarchy. Okay, cool. So if we do follow a kind of rule out policy, you would say for safety reasons, you would not consider vitamin K antagonist if other yeah. options are, are um, reasonable in this frail population. Debigatron, um, little data and a high degree of renal um, excretion, so the accumulation risk is high. Edoxaban can be used based on some data, but again, the, the renal excretion is, is higher than with apixaban and rivaroxaban. And for the latter two drugs, we have supportive data from the randomized trial and from uh, real-world um, data sets that support the use. Is that, would that That's be the- That's a good the... synthesis. Okay, very good. good. Very, very good. Very yeah. good. And, and now if we can go on uh, a little farther, Jan, we know that we have probably other specific vulnerable patients where we now have data with the antitenase. So can you comment farther on? I imagine, you know, for example, children. This oh, is yeah. something that is really, really important in clinical practice. Yeah, I, I agree because there, there you have the medical situation. We know that the coagulation system acts some, uh, somewhat differently in, in, in young children, especially, but also in adolescence compared to the other populations. So medically, it's a, it, it's a challenging population, but then it's also ethically a, a challenging population because the small kids, they can't make decisions on their own so you have to involve the parents whereas with a teenager he's still underage or he or she is still underage but wants to be explicit part of of the decision making and the the parents become more or less bystanders signing um, the, the decision made by by the juvenile um, so that is that is difficult but ve the very good um, situation here is that the authorities have understood that this is a very important population so all drugs that are developed for anticoagulation have now to, be, to undergo a dedicated pediatric um, development program and this has been finalized for rivaroxaban as you as you surely know um, with the einstein junior program for vte treatment so across the range from the very young, from the infant, uh, so to say, from the baby to small kids, uh, larger kids or adolescents, we have now a broad range of, of data and we have specific uh, doses that have been uh, validated and we have, of, which is even more important, we have a specific label allowing us to use rivaroxaban across these age groups, which I think is, it's a major, a major step 
And maybe, Jan, you can agree that probably we don't have such, let's say, accurate data uh, with LMWH or with KA. So we didn't have any dedicated studies. So this is really an advancement, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I, I fully agree. But, but what all, uh, other group that comes to my mind is as being vulnerable, surely is cancer patients. And again, we have a spectrum of cancer patients. So we have the metastatic uh, final stages uh, patient. We have the patient with a compensated cancer um, situation. We have patient where the cancer have, has recently been removed or is irresectable, undergoing chemo or no. Um, I think it's, it's also a spectrum. Can you give us some insights of how you deal with anticoagulation for cancer VTE? Yeah, yeah. Cancer patients represent about 30% or maybe more of our VTE patients. So this is really a group of concern for everyday clinical practice. Now we have data from randomized clinical trials with edoxaban, with apixaban, and we also have the large Callisto program that was developed to test not just efficacy and safety, but also, let's say, the quality of life of these patients when they receive uh, anticoagulant treatment for venous thromboembolism. And this is particularly important because, as you were saying, these Patients group is characterized by the increased thrombotic risk, but by a specifically high bleeding risk, probably due to concomitant therapies, to the cancer itself. So what we know is that we don't have a problem of efficacy with the anti-TNA agents. So we should, let's say, be comfortable from the efficacy side when we decide to treat these patients with an oral agent that should be an anti-TNA because we don't have data with the uh, bigatron. But what, what is also our concern maybe with safety and we know that there can be identified some specific patient subgroups and you were mentioning patients with luminal uh, gastrointestinal cancers that may suffer from an increased risk for bleeding but these are let's say, a specific subgroup of these patients, but while the for the large majority, anti-TNA agents and rivaroxaban, again, apixaban and doxaban may be the first option for the treatment. So I think that these are the standard of treatment for the large majority of patients with cancer and venous thromboembolism. Do you agree in your clinical practice that these are the agents of choice, Jan? Absolutely. So I, I, I basically I have nothing to add to what you just said because it's exactly the same considerations I I use when I approach cancer associated VTE patients and try to to tailor um, the anticoagulation decision according to their needs and and bleeding risk. Very good, um, Cecilia. Unfortunately, we don't have more time, um, but I can assure the audience that there are other podcasts. So. Please stay tuned uh, to this series of educationals. With that, I thank um, you uh, all for your attention. I specifically thank uh, Dr. Cecilia Beccatini from Perugia for sharing her insights. And I hope that you all stay safe until next time. Thank you very much. You're Jan Bayer Westlof. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is funded by Bayer AG and the approval code is PPXARALL. 26061. The views and opinions expressed throughout this podcast are those of the speakers, based on their expertise, and do not necessarily reflect those of buyer.